Good morning, St. Peter's. <clears throat> it's great to be with you today. Um, so I want to begin with a little confession. Uh, I, I really hate social media. <laughs> and uh, um, I, I found myself like the last couple of years, you know, death scrolling into Facebook and just feeling like worse and worse about myself. So I thought about doing one of those more ostentatious, hey, everybody, I'm leaving Facebook for a while things. But instead, I just sort of stopped using it. But then, especially during the pandemic, I noticed that uh, I wasn't connecting with other people besides my family and, of course, our St. Peter's family. So I uh, I got on to, uh, to Instagram and uh, it was really embarrassing because I needed my teenage girls to help me figure out how to use it. And uh, and so they helped me figure out how to use Instagram, and which is great. Uh, but as I was building my uh, my profile, I uh, noticed something that was a little uh, a little embarrassing, frankly, uh, as as things were uh, kind of going on to develop. That basically uh, all of my Instagram feed is about pictures of food and restaurants and uh, and recipes and things. So I I think that the internet might be telling me that I've got like an issue with food. But in reality, I really love eating out in the city and and food in general. And probably because of this, I find the reading this morning from 1 Corinthians to be really, really interesting. And we are totally going to go into the theological reason why it's important for Paul to say something like, um, you know, knowledge puffs up while uh, love builds up. But, but first, I want to talk a little bit about how people dined out or got food in the first century, in first century Corinth, because it's just too cool not to bring up. So Corinth was a really important city in, uh, in Greece uh, at the intersection of the um, of key uh, land and sea trade routes. And so about 100 years before Paul, the city had been reestablished by the Romans and it was experiencing this really significant influx of people from across the empire. And these were merchants and tradespeople and religious types who were all eager to capitalize on the importance that was uh, of opportunities generated by this newly elevated economic and cultural hub. It's sort of like how New York City is for many of us. In Paul's day, Corinth had become a commerce-driven, pluralistic melting pot that represented a wide range of peoples and cultures and, and religions. And so what we read this morning was a chapter from Paul's first letter to the small cluster of house churches that had recently been started in Corinth. And, and the church was probably founded by Paul and, and, and Silas, or excuse me, Apollos and Silas, and they met in homes of their wealthier members. This church was surprisingly, maybe even scandalously diverse. It was made up of the wealthy and the poor, free Roman citizens and people who were enslaved, those who are more conservative theologically and those who today we would probably term more progressive. So scholars estimate that the total population of Christians in Corinth, which was like a 90,000 person city, by the mid first century was probably fewer than 50 Christian souls. And they were almost entirely Gentiles, that is ethnically diverse, culturally Roman, Greek speaking, probably non-Jewish. So in many ways, the experience of living in Christian community in Corinth was not all that different from the experience of living in a Christian community, in a small church, in a large multicultural city like New York today. Now, 1 Corinthians is one of at least four letters that Paul wrote to this church, though only two survived and made their way into the New Testament. 
Now, next to me here is an image of 1 Corinthians chapter 9 from the Chester Beatty Library in Dublin, and it's one of the oldest remaining fragments of the New Testament, and it's a copy of Paul's letter from around 200 AD, about 150 years after the original, and you can still read the Greek in it when you look at it in person. When we read a letter like 1 Corinthians, we're reading a one-sided conversation, a one-sided of a two-sided conversation. So Paul's writing in response to a letter that he received from the church. Elders in Corinth are reaching out to Paul, who's this international celebrity of first century Christianity. And they're asking him for guidance on some pastoral matters that they couldn't quite resolve on their own. I love thinking about the context of this letter because it not only gives us a small insight into the day-to-day -day lives of someone living in a first century Roman city, but it also gives us an example of Paul's approach to pastoral caregiving within the context of a young, new, diverse Christian community. And I think it's really cool that even though these people lived like 2000 years ago and occupied a totally different world than ours, so many of the challenges that we face in trying to live together as a community whether as a family or a church or even as a country, remain the same. So let's go back to grabbing a meal in the ancient world. The pastoral issue that Paul is addressing in our reading today centers around a conflict in the church between those who ate idol meat and those who did not. Now, on the surface, this seems like a pretty niche and remote social issue and not something that we could readily sink our teeth into, if you'll excuse the pun today. However, food and religion in the ancient world were intimately connected with one another. Ancient uh, butchers and barbecue pitmasters and priests all shared a lot in common. Most public feasts and festivals shared meals and general meat eating had some kind of religious significance in the ancient world. If you were wealthy enough to eat meat, chances are that either it was being cooked and served to you in the dining hall of a temple, or if you were buying it in the marketplace, it was likely that that meat that you were bringing home had originally been killed and sacrificed to the gods. Now, before we recoil in horror at this, it's helpful to note how worship and food are still closely linked in our practices today. At the Eucharist, we gather around a table and eat bread and drink wine that are both a gift from God and an offering to God. And similarly, uh, table blessings and prayers over meals not only give thanks to God as the source of food, but they also invite God to join us as we enjoy God's good gifts of creation. And even in the Old Testament, sacrifices of animals in the temple that were made to God were often intended to be eaten by both the priests and the families and people offering the sacrifices. So in Corinth, the church was divided over whether or not Christians could continue to eat idol meat, either in a pagan temple or that meat that you brought home from the marketplace. And in some ways, this is kind of a surprising issue, because if you'll recall, in Acts 15 at the Council of Jerusalem, James, who was the brother of Jesus, uh, acknowledged that Gentile believers could be incorporated into the Christian church only if they avoided food sacrificed to idols. So this church in Corinth was divided between those who felt a kind of 
Christian liberty that they enjoyed to make themselves free to do what they please, to follow their conscience, to go into the temple, to eat this food, to socialize with friends, and to continue with practices that they had before they followed Jesus. And then a second group who felt compelled to follow rules and customs, many of which were laid down in scripture, that prevented them from eating the meat that was sacrificed to an idol. The leaders in Corinth were asking Paul to choose between liberty and the law, that is, freedom to eat according to one's conscience, or the freedom to comply with the laws that had, set, had been set by Scripture and the Council of Jerusalem. So here's what's really intriguing about this. Paul doesn't take the bait in this either-or scenario. Instead, he suggests a third option. He suggests what becomes a fundamental principle behind Christian ethics, a principle that has less to say about what I can or cannot eat, and more to say about how I live my life within the context of a diverse and pluralistic world, like the one in first century Corinth or 21st century New York. The principle is that knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Christians in Paul's day and in ours have to ask ourselves if following Jesus makes a difference in how we live our lives. Some of us grew up in churches that talked a lot about holiness and the importance of keeping rules. I went to a college that just a year before I enrolled had changed a rule about men being able to wear shorts on campus. Apparently before I got there, God really had a beef with hairy knees. So one of the things that drew me into the Episcopal church on the other hand, was our tradition's emphasis on grace and God's full embrace of all of God's people. Grace means that God loves us no matter what that there's nothing that we can do to earn God's love, and there's nothing that we can do to lose God's love. But just because grace sets me free from a rule-based religion doesn't mean that I'm at liberty to do what I please. Paul offers us an alternative to either libertarianism or legalism in the form of love. Paul quotes this morning from a famous passage in the Old Testament called the Shema, the prayer that faithful Jews were commanded by God to pray, there is no God but the one God. Jesus himself quotes this prayer in Mark 12 and other gospels and combines it with two other commandments. When he says, the first commandment is this, hear O Israel, the Lord our God is the Lord, he is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second commandment is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Love is the foundation of Christian ethics. It's what holds us in God's embrace and what binds us to the needs and lives of our neighbors. Love is what informs how we act in the world, not personal liberty, not religious or even civic laws, but love. And this is incredibly challenging stuff because it means that in order for me to act in a way that is truly loving, I need to be able to practice empathy. I need to be able to imagine myself in the shoes of my neighbor. I need to ask myself, what kind of person is a loving person? How would such a loving person act in this or that situation? Rather than having a clear law that can tell me what to do in every situation or a, a trusted feeling that I can simply rely on, the teaching that the Gospels offer us is that love is the heart of ethics, and it requires me to engage in complex negotiations of relationships, ever mindful with, of my connection with others. 
An easy and readily available example of this is how various communities in North America have approached something as simple as mask wearing. To wear a mask is a loving thing to do because it protects my neighbor from a risk that I may not even know I'm causing them. And yet for some, wearing a mask becomes a violation of liberty. I can choose not to wear a mask. Similarly to how I can choose whether or not I eat food sacrificed to idols. I know what's best for me. Jesus, however, calls us to follow him in the way of love, a way that changes how I navigate the world. Not a legal code, not solely on the knowledge or on my liberty, but rather by allowing God's love for us and our love for our neighbor to shape both ourselves and our world. Amen.